Hello and welcome to the Unpretty Podcast. I'm Basma and this is Chi. We want to explore the world of beauty through the experiences and stories of people of colour. In each episode, we will unpack different themes and topics, along with the help of some friends, experts and people we just really love. We've got lots to say, lots to learn and we're here to do that with you. So let's get to it. Hi babe, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Owning to what this episode is and the things we're going to talk about in this episode, I'm just going to say it again. How are you? Um, I'm actually okay. I think, to be completely honest, the last week has obviously been quite trying mm-hmm. um, in terms of the news. Our listeners mm-hmm. know that I am a Nigerian and unless they've been living under a rock somewhere, they mm-hmm. will also be aware of the massacre that went down in Lagos at yeah. the hand of the Nigerian government yeah. last week and all of the protests pre and post surrounding SARS and police brutality. So that I think watching all that go down and all of the content that was shared on social, you know, I don't really need to see another black person dying Yeah, yeah. again. Yeah, That was hard, but... I'm here and I am okay. <laughs> How are you? It's kind of the same actually. SARS thing really threw me as well because it just brought like this weird PTSD from um, Sudan this time last year and everything that went on with Sudan mm. last year. And it was, I was watching it and it just felt very triggering. There was this like, oh my God, I've been here. And now I hate that friends that I have that are Nigerian or just even you know the country of Nigeria are going through what I I know this feeling this like this feels like deja vu so I that definitely threw me a little bit and to be honest I just took myself a little bit off social media I did what I felt like I had to do which was keep plugging keep raising awareness whatever but I just was like okay I'm now consuming bad like kind of like energy of like just death and I started I came across some Mm -hmm. videos that were really brutal and I was just like I can't, I don't, I can't, I can't do this. So off the internet I came. But I guess I learned pretty quickly from last year that once you, once you're triggered, the best thing you can do is walk away from the trigger point. So yeah. Yeah. yeah it, was, it was a hard week. Hard week. It's really funny actually, because you say that the best thing to do is to walk away from the trigger point. Mm. I agree to that to an extent, but I, I think back to, you know, one of the things that I said during our episode back in June in response to the Black Lives Matter protests and the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor etc and talking about this um it's almost like a digital self-harm or mental self-harm actually yeah that I do mm-hmm. and I actually went through a situation a few days ago which <laughs> you were there mm-hmm. where essentially I did <laughs> put yeah. myself in harm's way in order to recover yeah and actually I did actually find that helpful yeah that was quite therapeutic for you huh Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. it definitely was I think definitely there's an element of you know to preserve your own mental health you have to sort of deal with it I think different when Mm -hmm. you're dealing with like trauma like SARS or you know with NSARS or the Sudan thing because we physically as diaspora there's not much we can do from here but raise awareness and sort of watch what's happening you know we can't be there we can't be on the ground but definitely day-to-day yeah. things I think we've all since Black Lives Matter we've all grown a bit of a backbone <laughs> where we feel like if things are just troubling yeah. us we can kind of just sort of say it for once say it and it's talk okay. through it as well yeah and I think that the thing 
that I'm referring to that I went through a few days ago was actually almost dealing with something from the past. Yeah. So there'd been enough distance and space and thought and processing in order for me to open that wound up, take off that bandage and give it some air and, and let it heal. Yeah, I think as people of colour, we've learned a lot about our own mental health this year, especially maybe more than any year ever. It's been such a year of kind of like realisations and understandings and trauma building and trauma understanding and I think actually it's been a bit of a revelation for a lot of people who maybe haven't even realized they had maybe underlining mental health not issues as such I think issues is such a strong word but just trickles of triggers yeah things that just we struggle with so it's really interesting actually this episode to kind of like discover that and talk about it yeah I 100% agree I think that there have been a lot of moves Mm. this year Mm-hmm. I'm even seeing it in the older generation, mm-hmm. even like mm-hmm. within my parents' group of friends and their network talking more openly about it. So hopefully we're on the rise to being more open to talk about yeah. mental health. Yeah. And with I that, <laughs> shall we introduce our guests? Yeah, let's do it. So today we have Rupi Ojla, aka The Doctor's Kitchen. Rupi is a medical doctor specializing in general practice, health writer, and a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle can change as medicine. His Food in Medicine and his second book named The Doctor's Kitchen, Eat to Be Illness, was on the Sunday Times bestseller list, and he is featured on shows such as This Morning and BBC Good Food Show, inspiring people about the beauty, food, and the medicinal effects of eating well. And also joining us, we have Agnes Makatuma, founder of Black Minds Matter. Agnes studied in Bristol, graduating with a BA in business management with economics before going on to work in the charity sector, creating and managing youth-led programmes in East Africa. Her own experiences as a black woman, as well as witnessing the deterioration in mental health in the black community around her, were both key drivers in her setting up Black Minds Matter in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. Welcome both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Hi, guys. Before we get into the episode, we always ask our guests one question, and that is, how do you identify yourselves ethnically and culturally, if they're two different things? Yeah, it's a really good question. I've never really thought about that before, but uh, I guess whenever I'm like filling out like consensus forms or documents for the government, I regard myself as British Asian or British Indian, if they have the option. It's a really interesting question because I actually think that we need to make more of a point of where exactly we're from, because the rich tapestry of India itself is so diverse. So just to say, you know, I'm British Asian doesn't encompass the specific heritage that I, I I'm from. Sorry, that was a really long answer. <laughs> no, but what is your? Yeah, you haven't even answered the enough. question though. I'm British British Indian. <laughs> no, but you British you said Indian. we need to be more specific, so yeah. you can be more specific. Oh, please. okay. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, I'm British Indian Punjabi Sikh. <laughs> wow, amazing. Yeah. And Agnes, what about you? I've always been super proud of where I'm from, so in terms of like identifying I would always say I'm from Tanzania would you always say African or would you always go straight to Tanzania I would always say straight to Tanzania ah. yeah I would always say straight to Tanzania it kind of just makes it easier because if you say African I'd be like but we're in Africa mm-hmm. so I've always just said I'm Tanzania and I'm, I, I love my country I'm super proud of our heritage and our history so yeah, I'm, I'm lucky well, enough to have visited Tanzania. Such a beautiful country. It Honestly, is. Beautiful, I'm not yeah. even being biased at all. Yeah. 
You can. You're allowed to be biased. <laughs> so the reason why we wanted to have you both on is obviously we're in October. We're recording this on the 15th of October, so five days after World Mental Health Day, bang in the middle of Black History Month. And with all of the challenging moves and news that 2020 has thrown our way, there hasn't been a more important time to discuss mental health. We feel like, I mean, obviously there's a big stigma around mental health in general, but particularly in Black and Brown communities. And what's interesting about having you both on here is that you both as people of colour advocate very publicly for more healthy conversations around mental health why do you think there's still a stigma in in these cultures and in fact do you think there is a still a stigma or do you think things are definitely I think our relationship with religion for example has been one of the reasons why a lot of people have always kind of leaned on faith to deal with mental illnesses when we look at how people identify mentally ill people in these cultures the first most common response to someone maybe having a psychosis episode or schizophrenic episode is they are possessed that's really huge in a lot of like minority sort of communities when it comes to describing mental illness I think our relationship with religion and how the fact that we kind of lean on religion a little bit too much when it comes to dealing with mental illnesses is probably the reason why there's still a stigma today. Yeah, I would definitely echo that. I think religion has a a big part to play in. And obviously, as is the case with African countries, India and and the other surrounding countries as well, Pakistan and and, and Bengal, have a, a mixture of different religions, which uh, again, sort of, you know, may, might not even be the religions, it's almost like the cultural aspects around it as well, because religions actually practice compassion, whereas the cultural elements like, well, this person has been possessed, or this person yeah. has something that is transmissible. And the other element I find is the fear of what our wider community thinks. And, you know, as an, mm-hmm. as a, from an immigrant background, uh, I think, you know, being seen in your community and amongst your peers, you know, as to do the right thing is, I, I think that leads to a lot of shame and a lot and leads to a lot of hiding of such a taboo mm. subject, mm. which is why, particularly from minorities, we're less likely to come forward when we're actually more at risk, um, yeah. which is the sad situation. And have you both always been open about talking about mental health? Was it a journey or did you grow up talking more openly about your mental health? How did you kind of get to this place now? I think if I'm honest, prior to going to medical school, definitely was in the camp of not talking about these sorts of things. Um, You know, don't show any sort of vulnerability. You're already in a situation where you are vulnerable because you are an ethnic minority. So don't give anyone any ammunition to essentially, uh, you know, pull you down further. But going to medical school, we're actually encouraged to open people up uh, and, you know, help people along their journey. And I think being vulnerable yourself is perhaps one of the most powerful tools you can have, both on a personal level and on a public level as well, because that, that, that vulnerability is actually your biggest strength. And so I I think throughout medical school and my my time training in general practice afterwards was definitely the time I I came to my own and and drew 
the confidence to, to talk about these sorts of things openly. I really like that strength and vulnerability. I, I completely okay. agree. And Agnes, what about you? I suppose I only started acknowledging mental health and the fact that I do have mental health and the fact that I should make it a priority just after university. It was just a few years later after losing my brother and then realising that I had created very unhealthy coping mechanisms. So trying to dig deep and find answers to these things kind of led me down a road of mental health and understanding the world of mental health so to answer your question certainly not like I don't think I've ever been too comfortable talking about these issues because I don't really come from a family that discusses these things and it's only been a very recent occurrence so yeah I suppose it's been super recent for me. Obviously you both do work in the mental health space and you've been in that space for a while but Obviously, I guess for you, Dr. Rupi, you are a general practitioner. At what point and how did you find yourself working in the mental health space? Did you make a, you know, sort of a concerted effort to be like, I'm going to go in this because I think it cares? Or did you sort of graduate to that space? Well, I think I've definitely graduated to it. And I think yeah, just from the outset, I'm definitely not um, a specialist in psychiatry or uh, have any formal postgraduate qualifications in psychiatry per se. But Part of my general practice training was uh, doing placements in psychiatry, so at psychiatric intensive care units, um, old age psychiatry, and uh, pediatric psychiatry as well. And as I'm sure everyone is aware, as a general practitioner, we, we see mental health issues um, on a daily basis, most of which doesn't actually present overtly as a mental health issue. People might come in with pain or uh, chest issues or breathing uh, disorders, particularly when I work in A&E as well. And so mm. I, I think the reason to answer your question why I've gravitated towards this is because it is just so abundant and there is an epidemic of a number of factors that feed into mental health conditions. Our obesogenic environment is also psychogenic, i.e. it predisposes to mental health issues. Uh, our loneliness epidemic as well, again, is something that fuels it. And I think bringing it back to the conversation around ethnic minorities, that sort of like family uh, installation of, well, we don't talk about these things again, is, is something that can perpetuate uh, a problem that we're more prone to. Yeah, yeah, very true. I think all of us, it's one of, I always think actually when we were going to do this episode that it's like it, we all kind of have that lived experience of that yeah. family mm-hmm. thing of being like, yeah, okay, well, we're not, we don't talk about this but for you Agnes I guess you did just say also with losing your brother and you thought you just you know you had an unhealthy relationship I guess with your mental health but how did that formulate into then working in that space? Yes so actually recently um after the whole Black Lives Matter movement in America I started to notice that a lot of black people specifically were going online and kind of just exposing themselves to a whole new world of attempting to heal and I quickly realized that a lot of these people could benefit from the same kinds of techniques that I used when I was trying to heal from the loss of my brother so like I wanted to essentially connect black people with black therapists but when we first started on this journey we only had the aim of kind of raising money for people to go to therapy and just kind of assumed that it would only be like, I don't know, 50 people that would be helping out. But we soon kind of realised that this there was a huge problem when it came to black mental health as a whole. 
when we were doing our research about black mental health, for example, we just realized there was not, not that much data available. And then just realizing that a lot of models of mental health are so Eurocentric, mm. we quickly just realized there was so much work that needed to be done. And this wasn't a case of us kind of dipping our toes into mental health and then leaving. We became so passionate about the idea of just changing the face of mental health in the UK in general and overall improving the accessibility of resources for mental health and most importantly addressing the stigma that exists and the various ways that systemic injustice kind of pours into the healthcare system especially when it comes to mental health treatments that are available for black people in the UK. Yeah you're so right it's it's I think for me I had a few health problems and family things and I've had a therapist for I'd say four or five years and I'm always make a point of saying I have a therapist because I just don't when people look at you and they're a bit like wait what and I remember I used to tell my I told my parents for the first time and it was almost like my dad was insulted by it (laughs) he was almost like (laughs) okay firstly yeah firstly what's the matter with you like what is this thing that you're now like you know just get on with it and secondly hello you have family so why are you paying someone else to listen to you yeah just Mm. couldn't I totally relate to that yeah he just like my mum was like if you want to go around telling people your business, go yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're going to go tell the whole world your business, this, this on you. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it's a, real, it's a real stigma, but then also I related to what you just said about finding someone who can relate on lots of different levels. I've always, for the first two or three years, I had a white female therapist. And when I got to the stage of being like, well, I'm struggling with like my Islamic heritage and with religion and with my relationship yeah. with God and all these things, they because I mean not generalizing but on average the therapists I've personally had have not been religious so they almost can't fully understand that godly element of being like okay well we all have struggles with religion everyone no one is like pure from day dot to like the end of life everyone always has a doubt or question before they go through it and um they couldn't relate so I had to make a concerted effort to be like you know what I need to get a black therapist so I need to look for a black therapist um, and now I love her because yeah. she's like like my auntie. It does make a huge difference. Like <laughs> when we were looking into why, you know, the different mental health figures kind of existed in the UK, we realised that obviously firstly the Eurocentric models of mental health, but the cultural differences and the language barriers mm. were one of the reasons why treatments weren't as effective as they could be. So mm. the fact that we're kind of trying to bridge that gap. Um, I just hope that it makes a difference in people's lives because it's certainly made a difference in mine. Agnes, you mentioned the traditionally Eurocentric model of therapy in the UK. Can you explain, especially for our listeners as well, like I can almost assume what you mean, but explain further what you mean by that. I think in terms of how the various approaches are in terms of therapy, don't really take into account culture and tradition and also religion, as mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So the fact that a lot of the models of mental health don't really open up to the idea that not everybody is, has the same sort of background Mm -hmm. as most people in the UK um, is kind of important. And I think, I think that kind of pulls into mental health in general. So just not taking into account the various language and cultural barriers. Yeah, very true. Okay. Yeah, that's true. I, I definitely agree with that because I think, you know, 
trying to explain, and again, I'm generalizing with the Indian household here, but trying to explain sort of the matriarchal figures mm. in a typical extended family Indian household is quite hard and it almost takes a couple of sessions itself. I can't go and hang out with these certain people because of what my family might think. Or I, you know, I can't, you know, the, the fact that I can't go to school on the on the bus uh, until this age or, you know, just, just, just silly little things that add up actually and actually paint a more sort of representative picture of what it's like and then having an issue on top of that as mm-hmm. well. I, I think that's why, you know, you can almost skip a few steps if you have someone who recognizes that from the get-go straight away uh, and yeah. so yeah I, I do appreciate that that point about the eurocentric model of um, psychiatric care and, and uh, psychotherapy as well and also yeah. doctor you know for us obviously we're you know black african females in the room and you are like a doctor <laughs> we don't know much about the mental health space when it comes to the indian community is it what would you say it's the same relationship with you know with your parents or your family is the stigma the same as what we would have? I would say there are definitely similarities for sure, as a, a lot of minorities, regardless of whether they come from an African uh, heritage or Indian heritage or uh, wherever. Certainly the sort of powerful figures in your typical Indian household kind of rule and and th- th- there are definitely obstacles to outlets of how you can express yourself again there are a lot of stereotypes and and we have to talk about stereotypes because they do exist and and they still exist even today of you know your typical daughter who is suppressed by her family or you know the mother who you know can't communicate with the father or the arranged marriage and, and the issues that can create in a modern society Mm -hmm. there are a lot of things there that are are perhaps distinct to indian households and indian people that may not have crossover but i think by and large you know there is certainly a silent mental health issue amongst communities from the south asia area that are being suppressed for those reasons and, and perhaps others as well would you say the balance is men and women it's it's quite a hard one um to, to determine actually because I think men in particular already have the the masochism to get over regardless of uh, ethnic background um, mm-hmm. that's something that men in general struggle with you know being in touch with their feelings or the the, the thoughts that they have to uh, represent a strong uh, figure both physically and mentally and and so the the barriers to expressing oneself is, is already up there and then when you you add the, the sort of cultural element to it as well. I, I reckon those are barriers as well. You know, it, 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 my bias is nutrition. So, you know, I'm studying for my master's in nutritional medicine. And when I see the world and, and, the, and the landscape of chronic disease, I, I tend to have the lens of nutrition by which I, I look at these things. And we already know that ethnic minorities are more likely to suffer with chronic diseases like blood pressure, cardiovascular problems, diabetes, take your pick. We're more likely to have these things. And those play in to mental health issues for a number of reasons. One of them is neuroinflammation. One of those is weight. One of those is uh, poor gut health. The fact that, you know, uh, food is different. And I think, you know, there's some studies looking at how you have to have that adjustment period and that can predispose to a whole bunch of other things. So, 
you know, th th there are all these other things that we have to deal with. And this may be one of the reasons why, anecdotally, at least I see, and, and, and even on a macro level, we're more likely to have mental health issues. Yes. That's really interesting. Yeah, the nutrition is so interesting. Agnes, you talked about your personal and therefore your business reaction to the murder of George Floyd. 2020 has brought on so many different awful things. We've got the yeah. pandemic, we are locked in our homes, there's mass employment. I don't even want to go down. I'm just, I feel like I'm just like spreading Happy misery right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrifying. Dr. Rupi, from your point of view as a general practitioner, have you also seen an increase in mental health struggles this year? Yeah, no, 100%. Like, it's quite scary, actually, to the point where I'm questioning. Now we know uh, about the sort of um, the mortality rate of the virus and the morbidity associated with it, where we draw the line and the justification for further lockdown, because the impact it's having outside of the virus i.e. on the economy on the mental health state of the population on other conditions including chronic pain cancer and late diagnoses follow-up appointments for you name it gastro eye health etc like it's having this this silent impact which is costing multitudes of what we're currently spending on the um, virus itself so mm. I, i'm I'm pretty worried and mental health is definitely up there with this sort of epidemic. And I don't think we're going to see the ramifications of that, or at least the data to state just what the secondary impact is until another six, 12, maybe even 18 months. And we could look at back, back on, on this period and be like, well, was it worth it? I think the initial response, hundred percent, you have to respond in that way. Now, I don't know. I don't have the answers. I'm apolitical, but uh, yeah, I, I do question it. And I guess talking about this year in um, 2020, Agnes, for you, in a sense, in a way, being able to build Black Minds Matter during this time probably has actually exponentially grown because people have been, in a sense, suffering a little bit more. Have people been receptive? to the business have you seen it grow have you found it easy to find the resources to build it probably at the speed it needed to suddenly build at this year um definitely i think everyone kind of realizes and understands and is almost shocked at the fact that no one's actually created a solution for black mental health not just not mm. like a solution but an option for mm. black people so mm. when i look at mental health for black people especially in the uk we should have had therapy offered to us straight after after slavery like that should have been an option the fact mm. that for 500 years no one stopped for a second in there and said this race has been through like a lot what who's looking after them considering we we suffer the most when it comes to so many various issues the statistics don't lie but no one has actually ever taken time to really create a tailor-made service for black mental health especially one that is accessible and free and during a time like this more than ever black people need it i mean we are i don't know three times more likely to catch covid according to figures and then we've got racial trauma to deal with and then unemployment and then the stop and search that is going on and then just the different ways how 
in how like the education system has failed us, poverty rates. There's a lot going on for our community, but I'm so glad everyone's got on board. People are willing to help and not just people from our own community, but a lot of people from other communities are doing the best that they can. We've got an incredible team of volunteers who have been really amazing and the black community has also been incredible in terms of just reaching out and asking for help. So we've had a better response than I could have ever imagined. But it's yeah, such a amazing. shame that we have to exist. Yeah. yeah. I have to yeah, add at that. Least, yeah. <laughs> at least you're yeah. finding a solution for people. Yeah. Obviously, we know that therapy and the medical route is number one solution. But if you don't have access to a therapist, what solutions do you think are out there? Agnes, I'd love to hear from you about um, the kinds of resources and also the differences of resources. I think, yeah. Dr. Rupi, I think you can also speak to this as well. I think the first thing to realise, well, looking for sort of treatment for whatever issues you're going through, is looking at the five pillars of your well-being so even though you might not be able to find immediate access to your mental well-being you could actually start tapping into things like think finding solutions for your financial well-being your physical well-being connecting with the community thinking of social ways to look after your well-being because a lot of the time people just think that going to a therapist is going to solve all your problems mm. but if you're not putting effort into looking after yourself physically like I've actually been in that position where I have gone to therapy but never actually worked out or moved my body or even like ate healthy and the therapy just wasn't enough so looking at yourself like as a full like fully fledged human being who has so many areas that you should be working on can really take off that pressure when it comes to your mental well-being um and joining things like group therapy is great finding your community online is amazing mm. um it's actually been my saving grace like i've never had a community around me physically especially growing up in a predominantly white area so finding that space online for me to heal a safe space where i can talk about whatever i want be heard be seen and be valued has really improved my mental well-being more than i guess therapy could have in the long run if that makes sense yeah that's so i can totally relate to that um i think that you know over lockdown Baz, you too. <laughs> we have this um, WhatsApp group that just keeps, in fact, it hasn't grown that much um, recently, but it just started off as yeah. just like black girls working in um, fairly similar industries. And then it expanded. I mean, we all still work in the same industries, um, but there's like 12 of us now, I think. And I think without that WhatsApp group, I don't know what well, that the last WhatsApp six group months would have been. Yeah, it's, it's actually crazy. But I think what Agnes, what you said, um, shared trauma. Sometimes, you know, I guess when the black when George Floyd happened, we all, all of us, and some of us are closer than others. Some of us actually don't know each other at all. But somehow, this collective trauma of everyone sort of grouping together and being like, "Hey, we're all struggling," and let's just be really open and really honest about how much we're struggling. And I remember around that week that it happened, we um, set up a little Zoom. Um, between the 12 of us and we just took the time to each give everyone a little space to speak and everyone yeah. took like 10 to 15 minutes just to be like okay well what do you feel and how has it impacted you personally 
and your view on what's going on and it was just it was like group therapy um it really is it's yeah it was it was actually in a sense it was liberating because you sort of look at your friends and you think wait like oh we didn't we didn't uh we've never talked about this yeah, but we've all been we've in the never same actually, yeah we've never actually openly talked about like everyone's kind of personal experiences no, with mm-hmm. racism and also just taking into account the fact that the fact that um, a lot of people, especially a lot of black people in England have almost turned, not turned a blind eye to racism, but it's been our coping mechanism to just kind of pretend like it doesn't exist. And then mm-hmm. after the whole Black Lives Matter movement, you ha- we had this like, like past trauma that just kind of reminded us of the different, like various microaggressions and um, forms of racism that we had ignored in the past and it all just kind of came crashing down and there was this like burden and level of burnout from just overthinking like the fact that you will never ever see the world the same again yeah there will never be an opportunity to ever turn a blind eye again so we're all stripped away of these coping mechanisms that 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 we think have kept us safe and now we have no choice but to actually speak out and we don't have that much time to do it it's very true um, you're very right. I guess, um, Dr. Rupi, I'm actually very into health and fitness, a little bit obsessive mm. about it. Um, so mm. I am fascinated. Uh, we're fascinated as a group because we've talked about this before and we were excited to have you on for this sort of um, topic. From a, obviously, you're studying it now and you're doing your master's, as you said, but from a dietary advice, you know, specific nutrients, vitamins, food groups, can you sort of break down a little bit to us from a health dietary point of view what you think people can do personally to just um besides sit in the sun which we're not going to get for another let's say year um (laughs) what else can we do to make ourselves feel better well um it's a fascinating topic and it speaks to this new renowned interest in nutritional psychiatry which Mm. has sort of been spearheaded by a few figures over the last five years um I've had, uh, I'm fortunate to have had a, a couple of them on my podcast talk about food and mood. Um, there's uh, Pol- Professor Felice Jacker, who's in uh, Australia, who came out with the SMILES trial, which mm. is basically where they did an intervention of a Mediterranean style diet. And I say style because I, I, I want to talk about how we can make that culturally relevant. Um, and uh, there's Uma Nadeau, who uh, set up one of the first clinical kitchens in a hospital environment, and she's a board-registered uh, board registered, um, psychiatrist and a professional chef as well. And so really, when we, when we look at those interventions, there's a few key things that stand out. It's increasing fiber content, which is generally lacking in a lot of people's diets. We're lucky in that our, our sort of cultures actually celebrate sort of um, rural simple food so beans pulses i know in nigeria there's an amazing study looking at the low prevalence of alzheimer's which they is in some way explained potentially by um, the diet which is low in animal proteins and high in pulses and, and beans wow yeah so definitely getting more fiber into our diet and different subtypes of diet plant focus so these are all kind of speaking to that mediterranean style but it's not generally mediterranean it could be you know i mean ethiopian for example has got a fantastic buffet of vegetarian and vegan foods that are so nutrient dense as well full of iron 
full of uh, micronutrients like zinc and magnesium. And, and speaking on those two micronutrients in particular, nuts and seeds, we generally have quite low magnesium levels, vitamin E levels and zinc levels. And when we eat different sources of nuts and seeds, you're actually consuming a lot of that in its whole form, which is a lot more bioavailable. And they also have plant-based proteins and, and fiber as well. Having a predominantly plant-based diet. Now, I know there are some African cultures quite meat heavy um, <laughs> as well. And, you know, even in, in parts of India, we have a Muslim population, which is, has got a lot of meat in their diet, uh, particularly around celebration time like Eid and the Parsi community as well, which are mainly around parts of Goa, Mumbai and, and other parts of that side of, of India as well. They eat sort of meat and eggs, breakfast, lunch, dinner, which is not a great diet to have. Um, and, and so like, you know, trying to train people or trying to, you know, influence people to perhaps relax the kind of meat and, and, and uh, you know, predominantly animal-based diets to, to try and increase more plant-based, you know, something you have to be quite sensitive about culturally when, when explaining these things to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing, those from ethnic minorities with darker skin tones definitely need to supplement with vitamin D3 during winter months as a minimum, potentially during the whole year. I'm no longer surprised when I do a blood test on a patient and the vitamin D level is just crashingly low and that can predispose to a number of different things like osteoporosis. But vitamin D isn't just a vitamin, it's actually a hormone and it has an impact on hundreds of different genes, um, many of which that we're still trying to find out. And, And there's definitely a link between low vitamin D, um, physical health issues, and potentially mental health uh, issues as well. But I, I could go on and on. Uh, it's fascinating, <laughs> though. There's quite a few things. Yeah. It is. We'd love to talk about generational stigma. We've talked about how various people in this chat have approached conversations around mental health with parents. But what we'd love to go away with is just a bit more solid advice for listeners who want to approach or need to approach this topic with uh, with their parents. Like my personal experience this time last year, actually, I look back, I was probably in the worst place in my life in terms of my mental health. And I was very close to going, you know, Christmas was approaching and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get myself out of the place that I was by Christmas, which is the point where I had to then go home and be with my parents for two weeks. And I didn't actually know how to broach that and prepare them for the person that was coming home. Like, how do you, how would you advise that that is navigated? First thing is educating your parents about what mental health is and what various mental illnesses are and just making them aware that it does not define who you are you are still their daughter or son and just you have to be patient it takes a very long time and then just making them understand that you are doing the best that you can to get yourself feeling great again and their support would mean the world to you but it's just it's important to also just make sure you're in a safe space. Gorge your parents' beliefs on these things because you don't want to end up, you know, getting sent off to a church for a week to be purged. Mm. Like, <laughs> it's really should laugh. You should. It's, you shouldn't laugh, but you should really gorge your safety first before you mm. even talk about these issues. So even just asking questions about, like, you know, Mom, what would you do if I came home and I was showing these signs? 
so gorgeous and just like in a, in a jokey mm-hmm. way and that could tell you how your parents are going to react mm-hmm. and then you could say but you shouldn't do that if someone is someone is showing these signs the best mm-hmm. thing to do when someone's showing these signs is this 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 um and if you feel like you're going like something positive is coming out of that then you can slowly start saying mum these the signs i'm talking about are things that i'm kind of experiencing in my life and i could really use your help in doing this 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 for me whether that's taking a step back or whether that's providing a safe space for me but make sure you cause your interests first before you call your parents and tell them about your personal struggles with mental health hmm. make sure just yeah just make sure you're safe that's really good advice um dr ruthie obviously the male perspective whether it's the Asian community or the black community, I think mental health for males, obviously it's growing a little bit and people are sort of speaking a little bit more, but the stigma is still very much alive and kicking that men don't have mental health issues. As a, as a man, and for any man that's listening to this, that is maybe going through some mental health issues, but isn't ready to be like, let's talk about this and let me go online and find a therapist because it's the unlikeliness is so low at this point how would you sort of give advice to probably a male about how to sort of manage their mental health personally if they're not ready to get to that stage of like getting professional help? You know, I think the tide is turning, particularly with the younger generations. Like I follow a lot of creators and and one of them is this Pakistani guy who's a little bit younger than me. I think he's like early 30s. And he talks a lot about mental health, but he uses comedy and humor to sort of introduce it to a really young audience, most of whom are still in schools and stuff. And he talks a lot about like violence and rage and and how to control your anger and why people have down days and up days and all this kind of stuff. It's really, really good. So I think the tide is definitely turning for that generation, although we need to do a lot more. The older generation, I I think, definitely need uh, a bit more of a helping hand and one thing I like to say, and, and I think it was mentioned by Agnes already earlier in our conversation, is everyone has mental health, right? It's, it's kind of like saying, you know, some people have physical health uh, issues and some people have just have like, you know, uh, they, they feel sluggish or whatever physically, but they're, you know, you don't have mental health issues unless you've got a condition. The reality is mental health, everyone has mental health and we operate on a spectrum on days where you feel vivacious or energetic or perhaps you know a lot of people don't ever feel like that today's where you feel down or sluggish or you don't really want to do much or you know you just want to sit around and watch tv the whole day and then there's other sides of the spectrum which become increasingly more extreme where Mm. you don't feel like you can go to work you don't feel like you even want to turn on the tv or you can't get out of bed or you feel like you want to self-harm or you want to do something because you just can't face it anymore. And there is this spectrum that we all flip along. And there is, you know, when I talk about it with my clinical colleagues, there is subclinical mental health issues that we can manage using less severe interventions and then clinical mental health issues where we need to take a more rigorous and perhaps a more immediate approach as well. And so when I explain it on this spectrum, people are like, oh, yeah, no, I mean, we're all on that spectrum. I mean, I'm lucky to be mm-hmm. on a side where I've managed personally, I'm, I'm speaking about now, I've personally been able to, you know, manage my emotions and, and how I feel and stuff. But a lot of people need help in that. And particularly, like you said, 
men, men of color, men uh, from cultural backgrounds where it's taboo to talk about these things, combined with the other issues that men in general uh, have to deal with when it comes to um, being allowed to express their emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, totally. Great advice. So before we finish, we always ask our guests one question, just a little bit of self-reflection and hopefully to end on a more positive note. (laughs) The question is, when did you realise you were beautiful? Oh, my God. Um... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) This is the reaction we get every time we ask this question. (laughs) Why does society punish women? for admitting that they're beautiful it's almost like you're scared you have to be modest when you talk about your looks but if someone said when did you realize that you were healthy or smart you would have an answer Mm. straight away um I truly don't know I think I am still becoming very comfortable in my blackness as a woman it's taken me years to sort of step into my blackness and be very comfortable with it so it's still a process and it's one that I dip in and out of there's days I feel beautiful there's days I don't but I'd say this year is a year that I've realized there needs to be more emphasis in to me tapping into my beauty and greatness so it's still a process and I don't want to lie and say I have the answer to that because sadly I don't and that's really sad I, I like that I, it's actually how you opened that was so interesting the way you were like it's funny yeah. how society punishes women for being like like why can't I just be like oh, I look really yeah. good today I think I'm really I yeah, feel I'm so really beautiful, beautiful. Mm, yeah sorry to put a downer on everything sorry no. <laughs> I was like <laughs> we'll end on a more positive note but no like I think that, um your answer is totally relatable for every woman slash it's it's very similar to what a lot of guests that we've had on here even male guests have have said but you're one of the few people that hasn't come to the end (laughs) and said but I am beautiful I think I know that I am but that I'm so scared of admitting it because I've seen how so many women have been punished for even just Mm. saying that I'm confident and I'm beautiful. Like society would be like, oh my gosh, she was so big headed. She was on this podcast saying that she realized she was beautiful when she was five. Like, wow. <laughs> but <laughs> um, so you are just, we just always have to act modest. And this is definitely something that I will be exploring with my therapist. Thank you for bringing this to the, my attention. <laughs> Your next therapy appointment is going to be about why can't I say yeah. that I'm beautiful? <laughs> why can't I just admit that I'm beautiful? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well then, Dr. Ruby. Yeah, no, it, it's really interesting what you said about like, you know, the, the ability to say, yeah, I'm healthy or yeah, like I can do this. But when it comes to, you know, your feelings about yourself, it's hard. It's almost like a, like I've got a, like a mixed Britishness about it. Like you know the reservation that you know you can't talk about these things, you can't boast, or you can't you know be so arrogant as to to say these sorts of things. But and and I think also Agnes, when you mentioned you know being comfortable with your your blackness, I, I've struggled throughout my whole life actually coming from an Indian background and my lack of Indianness um, yeah. and, and how that's plagued me because I, I don't speak. 
my mother tongue and a lot of my Indian colleagues do and I think that allows them to immerse themselves in their culture a lot more and I think mm-hmm. I've always had that bit of hole in, in me as to like you know it's turning into a bit of a therapy session but like, <laughs> like that, um, that, that element of, of me has is, is sort of always been um, missing and I think I, I've been continually trying to fill that hole with, with other things and you know, immersing myself in my cooking and, and cooking Indian dishes and being fluent in Ayurvedic medicine and, and all these different things, just trying to fill that hole. So I think I, I'm definitely a work in progress. Um, I, I, I definitely have attributes that I, I know I'm capable of. And I think running my own business as well has just come with a whole bunch of other sort of uh, issues of self-doubt. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think... Not to end on a negative note, but um, yeah, yeah, you two are you guys are fascinating. (laughs) We've we've always asked (laughs) a question, and people have been like, you know, like when I was young, I felt like this, or when I was young, I felt like that. But it's really interesting that you know we ask that question because it doesn't necessarily mean beauty has to be a physical thing. It doesn't. It's not always you know what what is beauty and what do we define as beauty and that's the whole point in this podcast. Like what is defined as pretty or unpretty, and Mm, you know that's all of us as humans rather than just beautiful. But it's um it's fascinating that you guys have taken it um (laughs) taken it a lot heavier than I say. I also feel like. I feel like there's a lot of pressure, especially for women, to constantly admit that they're beautiful. And Mm. my only piece of advice Mm. would be to really make sure you when you do say it you truly mean it don't let society mm-hmm. bully you into saying that you're beautiful you're this yeah. you truly don't believe it and i i feel like i might even get crucified for even not saying that i'm beautiful in case it might trigger someone else but the truth is i don't want to say something that i know deep down i don't mean just because society is constantly on this fake positivity kind of vibe um mm. But it's important to really say these things to yourself and really tap into why you don't feel like you're beautiful. And when you yeah. so that the next time you do say it, you truly, truly mean it. Um, so I, uh, I think I've got a lot of work to do all, in that department. Are we taking this question all to our therapists? Is that what's going to happen now? Yeah, I think, I think that's the most important. <laughs> why can't I just admit it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, both of you, thank you so much for giving us your morning and talking to us. It's actually fascinating to hear from some you know such different sides and different spectrums of what mental health is but before we go it would be amazing just to get your social details can you just tell us where people can find you and what you might have coming up next you can find me on the doctor's kitchen podcast and the doctor's kitchen.com where we send out recipes every single week and loads of information about lifestyle and what i'm up to next is my my next book which is three two one three portions of vegetables uh, per person, two servings, and only using one pan. So making Ooh, healthy yeah. eating as easy as possible. Yeah. <laughs> That's, you can find me on Instagram. So the first place probably to follow is the Black Minds Matter page. If you are looking for mental health resources or a community that you can speak to about mental health. So that's at blackmindsmatter.uk. I mean, that recording was like therapy, sitting yeah. through it. I feel yeah. Yeah. actually you. so aligned and, I don't know, relaxed. Yeah, it was very calming, I'd say is the right word for it. 
I felt like I was just yeah we were all sort of listening to to each other and understanding where each other are coming from and especially I thought you know obviously Agnes is a black woman so it was quite nice to align with her but then also hearing from Dr. Rupi and understanding the experience of you know an Asian male and or just even as a male and the struggles that they go through as well so um yeah it was very um very calming I felt very kind of like in the zone when I was like chatting yeah definitely what I found really interesting actually was one of the first points that Agnes made which was the relation to religion and religious cultures mm-hmm. and the taboo around discussions of mental health sure yeah. that's something definitely had never considered mm-hmm. and actually mm-hmm. does make a huge amount of sense mm. yeah it does I guess because Agnes is you know she's been doing this and this is her industry and her world and there's things that I think sometimes as people who either struggle with mental health or think about things like this we don't have to dig in too deep because we aren't forced into the position to even think deeply and I think this is what this Mm -hmm. episode was really good at so Agnes sort of that whole discussion around religion and mental health I was like oh that's actually good point this makes sense because actually a lot of a lot of people of color to I would I would arguably say most people of color do come from a religion or some sort of faith or some sort of you know understanding of faith so it is quite interesting to understand the correlation between the two yeah definitely especially living in a western more secular society mm-hmm. i think there is a a real contrast between the two cultures mm-hmm. or to the two then i mean I'm separating the secular West too <laughs> with the rest of the yeah, yeah. non-white world. But um, yeah, there's definitely contrasts there. So I wanted to do a bit more reading around the idea of the Eurocentric models of mental health that Agnes mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I found a great story um, that I would like to direct our listeners to read from the Bristol Cable, which is actually an independent news platform Mm. um, based in Bristol Mm. as the name says that explores this idea further so we'll put a link in our notes for for anyone to read for sure well a recommendation on my part because it's a mental health topic and obviously I'm I'm a big advocate of mental health I'm a big advocate of therapy a book that I've read that I hold very close to me and very dearly and I've read a bazillion times over is Matt Haig, Reasons to Stay Alive. I've bought it a few times because every single time I buy it, I give it to a friend to read and it helps them. And I believe in passing books forward. So when I finish something that I love, I always pass it to the next person. So I definitely would say if anyone is struggling with their mental health and needs something to just you know, feel heard or understood, Matt Haig, Reasons to Stay Alive is a beautiful book and as are his other books, but that one really, um, yeah, kept me going for the last, I'd say, good six years. So yeah, that's my oh, love. Do you have a copy at the moment? Do you yeah, want to I drop always, it around? I always have a copy. I can give it to you if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. He's a great, he's actually a great author because he is a big advocate of mental health. So he's a good person to follow as well. And Jordan Stevens has a platform called I Am Whole which is big on mental health and all around mental health. It's a great platform. It's got great resources. So that's another one to listen to and check out for um, as well. So yeah, those are my two recommendations. I never give recs, so this is nice. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one more, which is very linked to this episode and linked to a lot of the stuff that Agnes was saying about why she set up Black Minds Matter or at least accelerated their program this year. Mm-hmm. 
And this story was published at the beginning of this month on Mm. British Vogue Online. Mm -hmm. The title is Your Black Friends Are Still Exhausted. Check on their mental well-being. And it's just a really, really, really good read. And quite lucky, actually, to have friends that non-black friends and black friends who are regularly still checking in Mm. after every something happens. But I know that not everyone is lucky enough to have that. So check in with your black friends. Check in with all your friends, actually. (laughs) And... I don't know. Just be nice to each other. (laughs) I like that. That's a good ending. Be kind, everyone, and we'll talk to you next time. You have been listening to the Unpretty Podcast, hosted by me, Chi Euphodiana. And me, Fatima Khalifa. Not forgetting our producers. Shout out to ASOLA for booking our amazing guests. And Katie Bissett for managing this whole thing. Special thanks to Xenia Geller for our artwork and Enoch Colo for our soundtrack. If you like what you heard and want to hear more, please make sure you subscribe, rate us, and make sure you tell all your friends. And follow us on at Unpretty Podcast on Instagram and Twitter for more updates. Until next time.